were born before the wind Also younger than the sun And the bonnie boat was one As we sail into the mystic Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm the managing editor at SlashFilm.com and the host of the Slash Filmcast. And joining me today, he is the man who played Marty Greenbaum, a.k.a. the devil, in Michael Stein's 2006 film Love Hollywood Style, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? <laughs> Man, you hurt. You dig deep and you hurt. You hurt with the devil. Uh, again, for those who've listened to the podcast, you know my feelings about playing parts in which you don't have a real name. But you said I did have a name. What was my name? Marty Greenbaum, apparently. Why did they decide to make the devil some sort of Jewish man? <laughs> I don't this know. Is, I'm thinking this. I ought, to, I ought to protest this. I do have a little interesting bit of trivia on Greenbaum. Uh-huh. You know, there are a lot of Jewish names that um, are like Rosen, uh, Applebaum, Greenbaum. Greenbaum means green tree. Applebaum means apple tree. Rosen means rose. And what happened during the Spanish Inquisition, many Jews were forced to drop their religion. Uh, they were forced to become Christian under pain of death. Uh, <laughs> you know, it was a bad time back then. And but what Jews would do as a secret sign to one another is they would change their names to things that would grow in the garden. Ooh, which is also apropos of today's story, but I didn't tell David that. But it's of something grown in the garden. So Rosen, Greenbaum, Applebaum meant it was something grown in the garden. And so other people would know that they were really in their secret life still Jewish. Oh, very interesting, sir. Yeah, but that has nothing to do with the devil. The the only interesting thing was Faye Dunaway, which I've already talked about. Right, on a a previous episode of the podcast. Previous episode. But, uh, you you know, Stephen, speaking of episodes of uh, this show, The Tobolowski Files, we actually have some bittersweet news to report today. Uh, This episode is going to be the end of part one of season two of The Tobolowski Files. Uh, we have a lot of stuff that we got to get done in the next couple months. People who are fans of the show might know that we recently aired on KUOW 94.9 in Seattle, and we'd love to continue working with them to help them provide the show to their listeners. Uh, there's also a lot of other stuff going on. I remember I was walking outside of, um, of the library in my local town uh, library, and I got a call from you. And you said, David, I just got a job. And I was like, congratulations, Stephen. What is it? <laughs> And uh, you said, "Oh, I'm uh, I'm working on Law and Order SVU." I was like, "Well, that's fantastic. Is it a is it like a, a guest spot or a recurring role?" And you said, I, "I'm not sure yet." And I said, "I bet you're going to be a pedophile again." And we both had a hearty laugh about that. Uh, but then we found out that you actually are going to be a pedophile at SVU. Is that correct? <laughs> that is correct. And and you know, I I guess I the only thing I could say is you have to dance with who brung you. Exactly. I mean, when you go through your head and you think, who do we want to play a pedophile? We may think of Sandy Ryerson, and we may go to Stephen Tobolowsky. I tell you, I'm grateful. I love the show, and I'd love going to New York, and I will be uh, seeing a lot of my friends in New York and a lot of the uh, podcast fans in New York as well. Excellent. Yeah. And, you, you know, I was talking to my brother. I told him that story, and, and he said, yeah, I, I don't know what it is about that guy, but... <laughs> He just looks. He just looks like a sexual deviant. Is what, is oh, what he said. Oh God! So, 
Oh dear. There you go. You you have the mar- you have the market cornered in, in that regard. <laughs> oh, that's great. Oh. Yeah, it is it is bittersweet news. It is bittersweet news. Uh I in in kind of as a kind of a little wrap up thing I have uh, some public things I need to explain. Uh, one thing is uh, a public apology that I've promised on emails. I've gotten chastised on several emails. That in one of the podcasts, I have claimed that Shocking Blue was a Swedish band. And this has infuriated the Netherlands. And in, the, in, in reaching out the olive branch in international harmony, Shocking Blue was a Netherlands band. They still didn't know English, but they were a Netherlands band, and my apologies. And another thing, David, a lot of people don't understand the routine of putting this podcast together because I'm using close to a tin can and string as my technical means. But I have a lot of things in the routine of trying to get ready for this podcast that maybe people don't know about. And one of them is wrangling the cats. This is, this is a difficult thing because the cats love to jump on me when I do the podcast. And today, David, I did something I've never done before. And what's that, you, sir? I used mind control. Now, I'm not saying that it worked, but I'm saying I stood in that kitchen and I put out to those cats. I said, kitties, go to the back window. I think there's a bird there. Kitty, go to the back window. I think there's a gardener there. Kitty, go look at the squirrel. In my mind, silently, and the cats went to the back window, and I was able to shut all the doors, and now I am here in my cone of somewhat silence, ready to to tell you a story. And Yes, I think I will just begin because a lot of this story has to do with routines. A lot of people don't know, uh, but when I was in fifth grade, I was already five feet tall. Yes, I was a good deal taller than most of the boys my age. In fact, I was almost as tall as some of the girls in my class. This made me prime meat to be recruited by Coach Hester to be on the elementary school basketball team, the Carpenter Crusaders. I was not ideal for basketball. I couldn't run, I couldn't shoot, and I was afraid of the ball. Ordinarily, this would be three strikes against you. But Coach Hester needed some muscle under the boards, and I was tall, and I guess he thought in a fantasy world he could mold me into a player with talent. So I became a first-string forward. I was a crowd favorite, not because of my productivity on the court. I averaged about four points a season. But because I had a nickname, and the parents could always yell, Come on, Tobo, shoot the ball. Come on, Tobo, pass it. Come on, Tobo, get off the floor. It was catchy. Coach Hester told me I could make more points if I hit more of my free throws. You see, I went to the line a lot because the boys on the other school thought I was Carpenter's big man. So they would always elbow me, trip me, shove me into the walls. But the problem I found in making free throws is that they ain't free. Think about it. Usually the only time you go to the line is when someone on the other team has just knocked the stuffings out of you. And I found it difficult to concentrate on making free throws if I was bleeding or crying. Coach Hester told me what I needed was a pre-shot routine. This would be something I would do every time I stepped up to the line to shoot a free throw. The sameness of the preparation would level the playing field. It would make the immediate pass disappear. 
The constancy of the approach would make every situation more familiar, therefore more comfortable, and therefore increase the probability of success in the present. Coach Hester did not know it at the time, but he was articulating a theory modern scientists have just quantified about dealing with change in difficult situations. Recent experiments took athletes of different disciplines and students taking on new projects. They had golfers and basketball players who stuck to pre-shot routines, and they had an increased success in making their respective shots by a whopping 33%. And students who used the same study routine also had a greater ease in learning new material and greater retention afterwards. Now, it's obvious how the pre-shot routine helps with performance or auditioning. So the question, does it work with life? Is it something we try to do unconsciously? I would say yes. Looking back at that winter of 1987, I believe I was formulating a pre-shot routine in those early days with Anne in our home on stilts above the Hollywood Bowl. First, there was tea in the morning and then work in the garden. Now we always kept an eye out for the mother skunk, both fearing and secretly hoping to see her again. The garden was bursting at the seams, and I kept wondering if this was going to be the garden my friend Dee Dee told me about in a dream, the one that I was supposed to let go to seed if I was ever going to live in reality. After the garden, there were morning dog walks, and Pooch and I had it down. I wouldn't even have to move. The Pooch obviously spoke some English. She understood the word yes. She would look at me with those huge, pathetic Pooch eyes, and I would say, Yes, and that was enough. She would rock it over to the leash, start jumping up and down three feet in the air. Then as soon as she saw I had the leash in hand, she would stand absolutely still until I attached it to her collar, and then it was off to the races into the wilds of Whitley Terrace. We did avoid the part of the block where Cerebus, the dog from hell, lived, unless Anne went with us. She had this dog's number, and whenever she joined us, I would urge her to walk down that loop of the street, the dog would start growling until he recognized Anne was walking with us, and I never understood it. She weighed 100 pounds soaking wet, stood 5 foot 4 inches, but he must have been a good judge of character or had been looking through one of our windows one night when she was mad at me about something. He knew that there were certain human beings you just didn't cross. When Pooch and I were on our own, we would casually stroll up and down the hills, up and down the block, wondering if we would run into any more celebrities moving out of our area. One morning, I was sure I saw Hulk Hogan loading boxes into his Volkswagen. Occasionally, we would run into other dog walkers, and we would engage in the strange dog-human conversation where the human talks to the other person's dog in a loving, ridiculously flattering sentiment, like, Oh my gosh, you're the most beautiful fella I have ever seen. The most beautiful fella. Over the past months, I've become quite good at faking a dog-gasm. One mysterious dog in our block, the curious one, was the one that lived next door. Whenever we walked by, I heard a bark, and I judged by the high-pitched tones it was some kind of small poodle, but I never saw it, or our neighbor until one morning. Rounding the corner, I saw a man standing in the street outside of our house, looking through our front gate at our garden. I called out, hello. 
he turned and saw us coming, and he began waving at us, running to meet us. He was odd. He seemed both youthful and elderly at the same time. He was a tall man with somewhat unkempt gray hair and glasses, but he had a very quick and fit way about him. He greeted me, and I could tell from his accent he was English. He extended his hand and introduced himself as Garth. He was our neighbor. He apologized for being a bit of a recluse, but he wanted to know if my wife and I wanted to come over for some tea and a proper introduction. I must have been unconsciously affected by the grandeur of the invitation because I bowed and said, yes, we would be over in a minute. I left the pooch at home, and Anne and I headed over to Garth's house. He welcomed us heartily, and we sat in his bright, sunny den. He served English tea with a plate of toast and orange marmalade. Garth said he noticed us when we started hauling up pots and dirt to our patio. He said he always had a good feeling about anyone who wanted to grow a garden. He was trying to develop a green thumb himself. His wife was the gardener. She had just passed away six months ago. Cancer. Terrible, really. She was very young, just in her 40s. She was an artist. I looked around the room, and I noticed the walls were covered with paintings. They crossed all artistic styles. Some were abstract, some were impressionistic. I asked if they were all hers. Garth smiled, and his face reddened, and he said proudly, All of them. I commented that they were beautiful, and Garth gazed at them steadily and said it was a great comfort to still be surrounded by something that was so completely her, so lovely. And then he fell into a bit of a silence, and then he asked, Do you really like them? We nodded enthusiastically. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well then, said Garth, come along. Garth rose and led us into his living room. Now this room was a complete contrast to the den. Here, all the blinds were closed, and there was no sunlight at all. In the dark, I could make out frames on the wall. Garth said, I keep her watercolors here. That was really her specialty, watercolors. As my eyes adjusted to the dark, I could make out the delicate brushstrokes. The painting seemed to be scenes from nature. Garth spoke quietly. She did these back in England, years ago. I keep them in the dark room to protect them. The sun would destroy them in a blink of an eye, and we can't have that. They're very delicate. The blending in watercolors is so important. She did it so beautifully. There was a silence as Anne and I looked at the paintings in the dark. Garth's disposition suddenly brightened. Very good. And he led us back to our toast and tea. Well, there you have it in a nutshell, he laughed. He said the hardest part with losing the one person you love is that it leaves you at a complete loss at what to do with yourself. It's hard to know what to do with your time. Garth broke into a hearty laugh and said, Oh dear, it sounds rather gloomy, doesn't it? I don't mean it to be. The point of it all, what I meant to say was, Welcome to the neighborhood. In the meantime, I would consider it a great favor. If you need any assistance at all, please come to me. Anytime. Call upon me. It would be a great pleasure to help out. We thanked him, and on the way out, Garth confided that if we ever wanted to go to the Hollywood Bowl, he knew a stairway built into the side of the mountain back in the 20s, and it would take us right there. 
It was something of a secret, reserved for people in the know, but that included us. You know, more than the celebrities in the neighborhood or the possibilities of seeing our mother skunk again, I felt comforted by the fact that I was now one of the few people in the know. I had a dream later that week in which I saw Garth's wife. She was young, and she had reddish-blonde hair tied back. She was sitting behind her easel. She looked at me over a canvas she was working on. I told her how much we loved her paintings. She smiled. She asked if we saw them all. I said we did, even the ones that were kept in the dark. Oh, I can hear the singers cry Smell the sea and feel the sky Let your soul and spirit fly into the misty Where that foghorn blows I will be coming home Yeah, when the foghorn blows I want Anne had taken the pooch out on a midnight run and I was going to start the long process of packing for my trip to Mississippi to shoot Mississippi Burning directed by Alan Parker. I was leaving in a week. Packing for a trip is like an iceberg. 90% of it is unseen. Phase one, I check out what the weather will be at my destination. I think about what I plan to be doing in my off time. What will I be comfortable wearing at the hotel or in my trailer? And what will I need for workouts and jogging that can also be used as pajamas? Phase one can take days to complete. Phase two. I pull out my one suitcase and I throw in the same socks, underwear, pants, shirts that I always end up wearing. Phase two takes 15 minutes. I have since come to understand that you don't need anything special to hang out at a hotel bar and after two mojitos, you're not going jogging. I was getting ready for phase two and I pulled out my suitcase when Anne had slammed through the back door. The pooch was shrieking. I heard the ruckus. I came a-running. Anne put on her exorcist voice again and said, Stand back. The pooch has been skunked. Anne came through the kitchen, dragging the pooch on the leash. The pooch looked very ashamed. The smell from across the room was indescribable. For those of you whose exposure to skunks is limited to Pepe Le Pew cartoons, let me elaborate. At a distance of several hundred yards, the smell of a skunk is unpleasant. Up close, it's something akin to the animal version of nuclear warfare. It was my first time, up close and personal. I was amazed that the scent was something like garlic, hot garlic. Hot garlic multiplied thousands and thousands of times over. On the stinkometer, it was metaphorically comparable to the fish in the sea, to the stars in the sky. It made the eyes water, the windpipe close. It rubs off on anything it touches, in this case, the carpet. And it is apparently impervious to just about anything. But Anne was a country girl, and she knew of skunks. She dragged the pooch into the ceramic shower stall and closed the glass door. She came out and was all business. She said they were on the homeward-bound part of the walk when the big mother skunk walked past them. Pooch started barking. The skunk ignored her. But then Pooch lunged on the leash, and the skunk turned and fired. 
and got Pooch right on top of her head, right between the eyes. Anne looked at me and got as serious as Chad Everett on Medical Center. She said, we need tomato juice. Tomato juice will counteract the stink. I suddenly felt like I was on Star Trek listening to Spock. The pooch was wailing in the background. It was long past midnight, so all the stores were closed, so I ran over to Garth's and rang his bell. He came running out in his bathrobe, wondering if there was a house on fire. I asked him if he had any tomato juice. It was an emergency. He made a face and laughed and said, Skunk? I said, Yes, yes, you know the tomato juice trick? Garth said, yes, I know the tomato juice trick, but in this case, my remark was predicated on the fact that I can smell your house. There is a liquor store at the bottom of the hill. They're open all night. I'd give them a try. So I drove down to the 24-hour liquor store. They didn't have tomato juice either, but they had the little tiny cans of Snappy Tom Bloody Mary mix. The quantity seemed insufficient for the job at hand, and I was afraid of the pooch getting the spicy tomato in her eyes. The night clerk was suspicious over my standing over the shelf for a prolonged period of time, and he asked me if I needed anything. I told him no. I was just wondering if Snappy Tom would hurt a dog. Awkward pause. I left the store empty-handed. I came back explaining to Anne my fear of blinding the pooch with jalapeno juice. A vein in Anne's forehead started to bulge, and she developed what I would call a severe disposition. She explained to me that we had to act now or the pooch would be confined to the shower forever. We could never get the smell out of the rug or the furniture if we let her out. The dog let out a long, painful wail, which in that ceramic shower stall was transformed into a ghastly echo chamber. It was like part of the soundtrack of the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disneyland. I expended my male brain to its full potential. I came up with zilch. Anne suddenly got an idea, and she ran to the kitchen. She opened up the fridge and started slinging salad dressing and wine bottles around. She pulled out a pot of leftover homemade spaghetti with meat sauce. She came over, running with the pot to the bathroom, and she said, I don't know if this will work, but I made this sauce with tomatoes. Maybe it'll take some of the edge off of the skunk, and the pooch can spend the evening in the garage until we get some tomato juice in the morning. I said, give me that pot and stand back. Close the door behind me. Don't open it, no matter what you hear going on in there. I took the spaghetti. I kissed Anne goodbye. I opened the shower door and saw the pooch cowering in the corner. She looked up at me with the most pathetically sorrowful expression. I took the top off of the pot, handed it back over the shower stall to Anne. And then I started to dump one half gallon of spaghetti and meat sauce on the dog's head. The pooch wailed as if she was being tortured. She looked up at me, hurt and betrayed, and seemed to say, Why, Stephen, why? I thought we were friends. Huge gobs of pasta and ground meat splattered on her head. She was going into some sort of parasympathetic shock when she opened her mouth and some of the spaghetti fell in. She twisted and turned and howled and grimaced, and then she chewed. And she chewed and chewed some more, and then she stuck out her tongue and tried to taste her entire head. The howling stopped. She looked up at me amazed. Her eyes lit up with joy as she shook her head in disbelief as if to say, Oh, you're not killing me. It's food. You're covering me with food. What an amazing idea. You're a genius.
I opened the shower door and Anne started laughing hysterically as we watched the pooch enter a sort of realm of Dionysian delight covered with a mountain of cooked ground beef, tomato sauce, and pasta. We sat there as she rolled and squealed and looked up at us with such love it could break your heart. That evening had several unexpected results. First, the spaghetti and meat sauce worked pretty darn good in removing the stink. I would say it was around 80% effective. Good enough to avoid a trip to the vet, more tomato baths, and isolation in the garage. And secondly, the pooch seemed to develop an entire new respect for the shower. She began to see it as a sort of extreme eating chamber. She would stand outside the glass door and watch with envy as Anne or I would bathe. I'm not sure what she was thinking, but when she saw us coming out wet and steaming, I imagine her poor pooch brain constructed a beautiful world in which we were covered in gravy. When I was in college, I wrote one of my first stories. It was called Autobiography of a Crawfish. And I'm going to read you an excerpt. Chapter 1. Water, 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 bug, water, 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 mud, 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 water, 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 bug, 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 water, 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 mud, 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 etc. I was very proud of this work. I felt it was successful on many levels. It challenged everything we know about narrative and nihilism at the same time. Besides being a painfully truthful reveal on the inner workings of the crawfish psyche. You can imagine my shock when I read last week of scientific revelations into the human condition based on the life of a crawfish. Yeah, at first I thought somebody was trying to steal my work. But as I read further, I became fascinated. The crawfish brain, if you can call it that, is of course in no way comparable to the human brain, but there are some amazing similarities. Apparently very true to my book, the crawfish is drawn between two poles, food and fear. The only judgment they make on a regular basis is will they get food or will they be food? They have a very acute sense of smell that attracts them to a potential lunch, but they have virtually no vision to protect them from danger. The crawfish is only able to discern shadows. He uses a sort of crawfish calculus to judge the speed of the shadows around him. This calculation of the unknown is translated into a simple risk-reward equation. So, if I were ever to write a second edition of my book, it might read something like this. Water, 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 mud, water, water, bug, 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 water, water, shadow, 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 forget it. Although I spent most of my college years mocking the meager aspirations of the crawfish, I recognize now that I am his brother when it comes to the shadow. As much as I would like to think of my life as being shaped by trying to realize my dreams, I think at least an equal portion has been formed by my efforts to escape the shadow. There's an old cliché that you should write about what you know, and it's corollary that when you act you should stick to parts you know, but, of course, the catch to all this is, we almost never know what we know. The only reason why this matters 
is because we invariably fault ourselves for being unaware of the forces that shape our lives. I look back on the Christmas of 1987, and I am amazed by the distance between what I thought was happening and what was really happening. Even though I just got cast in a huge movie, Mississippi Burning, I had absolutely no idea this was the beginning of my career. I had no idea that the fact that Alan Parker cast me in this movie would bring me four more movie offers before this film was even completed. In fact, if I could climb into the time machine, the one being invented by our massage therapist's boyfriend, Miles, and was able to go back to that week before Christmas, I was certain my career was over. Yes, absolutely. I was 36. I was losing my hair. For the last six, seven years, almost one quarter of my life, I had acted in five productions of Beth's plays. I had directed three productions of her plays. I had co-written true stories for David Byrne with Beth. And so I assumed when I drove down that driveway in the Hollywood Hills for the last time, I had stepped off the train to somewhere. It's often hard to tell the difference between the journey into being and the journey into exile. My feelings of dependence on Beth terrified me in their power. Certainly she had been my first real love and someone in whom I had invested so many dreams for the future. It seemed logical to pine. But the feelings I had weren't logical. They overwhelmed me. They destroyed my sense of well-being and they left me adrift in a soup made of equal portions of fear and despair. Science has recently revealed that all this is quite normal. They'd isolated 65 college-aged men and women who had undergone a significant breakup, and they found that the way their brains worked had changed. The face, the name, the voice of the former mate had shifted from the area of identification and even pleasure in the brain to the area associated with survival. Psychologists speculate that this shift in brain function may be the source of stalking behavior, substance abuse, and homicide associated with some breakups. I had been living with Anne for months. We had shared two homes together. I didn't know it, but I was on the verge of a successful career. But one afternoon, I became so overwhelmed with despair of being separated from Beth, it hit me out of the blue. It wasn't something I felt I could talk to Anne about at the time even though now I realize it would have been the best thing to do. I knew in the back of my mind this pattern was somewhat self-destructive. I didn't know what to do about it. I was terrified. I did what I always seem to do in these situations. I called Bob, my friend and partner in spirit. I told him about my situation and about my grief and how embarrassed I was by it. Bob listened to it all, and then the sage of all sages said, Bro, there are two types of people in the world, your beloved and air breathers. That's it. There's nothing in the middle. When someone you have loved moves on, they move on. No bad on them, but they go back to being an air breather. It hurts for sure, but the sooner you see it and accept it, the better off it'll be for you. I was heading off from Mississippi in just a few days. Anne was despondent. Her mood turned darker every day. She felt like she would never see me again, that I would go and I would never come back. Call it feminine intuition, 
no one knew at the time that a series of winter storms through Mississippi were going to stretch my tenure in Jackson from two weeks to ten weeks. As the day stretched on, I would call home. Anne's mood would vary from feigned cheer to tears and regret, and worst of all, silence. There's nothing as unforgiving as the silence of a long-distance phone call. I asked Anne how the pooch was. She said she sleeps with me on the futon. I broke the rules. I couldn't help it. I was too lonely. I asked how Coco was doing. She said she sleeps with me too. I said, had you seen the skunk again? Anne said once, by moonlight, running across the empty lot. I asked how was the garden. She replied it was too much work to do all by myself, so I'm letting it go to seed. I paused. On the other end of the line, I was wondering, was this the moment in my dream that Didi had foretold? In hindsight, I see that once again, I was wrong, and I did not know what I know. The seeds had already been planted. There was already movement under the earth, and what was coming would change my life forever. I turned off my lights in the hotel room, and I lay awake in the darkness, listening to the party in the adjacent room. As a side note, Nobody does drunk like Southern boys. But that isn't what was keeping me awake. More likely it was the silences and the long-distance phone call, or wondering if I was in the same predicament as my crawfish. I had no idea if I was moving toward my dream or just running from the shadow. I looked out at the night, unaware that the answer was right in front of me. In the cold, starless sky before me, I saw the moon. It was waning. I never realized the simple fact that it was the shadow that made it beautiful. That was Escaping the Shadow, a series of stories by Stephen Tobolowsky. So I guess we should make some announcements, given that this is the end of part one of season two. That's and, right. Uh, There's for, more to come, but exactly. that's it for now. So season two will wrap up. Stephen already has it all mapped out, but uh, we've just got a lot of stuff going on. Stephen has another job he's heading to, as we discussed, and I'm starting grad school in a, in a few weeks. Um, so we just have to take and what, some... What's, what school are you going to, David? Um, I'm just going to get my graduate degree in education, Stephen. Let's just but what, what is the name of that school you're oh going to? Oh, my God. Uh, I, I'm going to Harvard University. <laughs> oh! Yes! Um, so so uh, that'll be fun. And uh, you should know that uh, we'll be back around mid-October um, with new stories. So... I know probably a lot of you are thinking, well, that is a really long time, and it is quite a, a substantial period of time, but if you want to make sure that you can keep up with the Tobolowsky files, make sure that uh, there's new episodes or that you'll, you'll find out when exactly there's new episodes, there's a bunch of ways you can keep in touch with us, which I would strongly suggest. The easiest way is just subscribe to us in iTunes or in whatever uh, podcast catcher that you use. That way, anytime a new episode is uploaded, you'll automatically download it. And a lot of you already do subscribe via, uh, via iTunes. I'm guessing a lot of you probably haven't heard all uh, 38 episodes of the Tobolowsky Files yet. Well, you've at least heard this one, so the other 37 episodes. 
Um, so I'd strongly suggest you go back into the back catalog, take this time to, to check out the, you know, 20 to 30 hours worth of Total Asuki Files episodes uh, that we've already uploaded. And uh, finally, you can also keep track of the Total Asuki Files by following us on Twitter. Stephen, how can people follow you on Twitter? They can follow me at um, twitter.com. Oh, well, well, let me spell my name first. I have to do that, David. Sure. Yeah, the email address that you should write me at is stephentubolowski at gmail.com, which is S-T-E-P-H-E-N, T as in Tom, O, P as in boy, O, L-O-W-S-K-Y at gmail.com. Thusly, Twitter would be twitter.com slash Tobolowsky and facebook.com slash Stephen Tobolowsky. Excellent. Uh, so those are ways you can keep in touch with uh, Stephen Tobolowsky and find out when new episodes of the Tobolowsky Files will be airing. But uh, keep an eye out for us in uh, mid-October and also tell all your friends about the Tobolowsky Files. Uh, take this time to kind of build up the buzz because uh, we really could use your help. You can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen S-K-Y. Facebook.com slash Chen David. You can also find the other podcast I do at slashfilmcast.com, and you can check out slashfilm.com, which is a really cool movie blog that makes this podcast possible. Finally, one last announcement. Stephen, hopefully by the time people are listening to this, they will be able to very easily purchase Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party on iTunes. Is that correct? That is correct. In fact, uh, any, any day now, uh, iTunes has asked that birthday party be digitized uh, and... Uh, be on their website to where it's one click one click away under I believe it's documentary films is where they're going to have it nestled so if you feel a need to watch birthday party uh, and don't want to wait for Netflix or or buy or buy it from stbpmovie.com just go to iTunes look under there put in Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party and you can listen to it instantaneously just like any of these podcasts and uh if, if you want still the entire film, which is the movie and the hour and a half extras, or want me to sign it, please just write to stbpmovie.com, and we will take care of it that way. Very cool. Thank you. Well, check that out in iTunes. And uh, it's, for those of you who don't know, Stephen Tobolowsky's Birthday Party is the movie that inspired the podcast. Ah, yes. So if you like The Tobolowsky Files, I can almost guarantee you'll like Stephen Tobolowsky's Birthday Party. Check it out on iTunes or at stbpmovie.com. That's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of The Tobolowsky Files. Uh, we hope you guys have a great uh, few weeks without The Tobolowsky Files. Think on them, download them, tell about them to your friends, and uh, we'll see you guys in October. Thank you guys for listening. Adios. Adios.